Well, let's uh, open our Bibles to the fourth chapter of this Paul's letter to the Philippians. The fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. The title of our series that we are in is Slaves of Christ. This is part 10. We have one more to go, Lord willing, in, in uh, the latter part of the fourth chapter. Um, and the subtitle for this message is Practicing and Performing the Gospel. Practicing and Performing the Gospel. Uh, and as we prepare to read God's Word and, and hear it explained, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Paul told the Corinthians that they were a letter from Christ, written on hearts, known and read by everyone, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Lord, may we, this church, be a letter. In fact, Lord, may we be this letter of Philippians, written on our hearts, a letter from Christ known and read by everyone. For we are going to be read by everyone, but we can only be a letter from Christ, this letter from Christ, by your Spirit and our willing responsiveness. So we ask for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, if you would join me in reading. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and probably pronounced uh, something like Suntike. So that's what I'm going to do. Soon to Kay, to be uh, of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. In these three paragraphs, first Paul addresses the church community about a relationship in which there was no peace. They were at odds with each other. Then he speaks to how they as a church can have the peace of God guarding their hearts and minds. And then finally in the third paragraph, what it, he speaks to what it takes for the God of peace to dwell among us. Do you want the peace of God to be among us? I do. Do, do you want us to have the, the unity, the love, the, the harmony in our relationships that this letter to the Philippians has so thoroughly described? 
thinking back especially to chapter 2. Well, to, to, to obtain it will require deliberate, intentional effort. Martha Graham, who, who danced and taught, sorry, my eyesight seems to be hindered by these foggy glasses, so <laughs> see what I can't do here. Uh, Martha Graham he danced and taught for over 70 years in the 20th century and, and has probably influenced uh, American modern dance more than any other suggested, quote, it takes about 10 years to make a mature dancer. <laughs> Not exactly easy. It takes 10 years. Dancing appears glamorous, e easy, delightful. But the path to the paradise of that achievement is not easier than any other. There is fatigue so great that the body cries even in its sleep. There are times of complete frustration there are daily small deaths. Sounds like exam week for those in college, right? I mean, That's an apt description of what it takes to make a Christian, a disciple. D don't misunderstand me. That's not what it takes to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But it is what it takes to be made into what you have already become. It is what it takes to be made into what you have become. Some of us think about the Christian life as this ideal, this sort of um, paradise that we aspire to without considering the effort required to live it. It's like having the desire to be a dancer, even studying the techniques of dancing, maybe ballet or whatever form of dance, without ever putting in the effort to achieve it. If one wants to achieve being a great dancer or living the Christian life, it will require times of, quote, fatigue so great that the body cries even in its sleep and of complete frustration, as she said. It will require, and I think she was borrowing from the Apostle Paul here, daily small deaths. Daily small deaths. In today's text, Paul speaks to two specific people and the believers around them about some deaths that they need to die in order to achieve peace and then shifts his attention to the rest of the congregation, that then includes us, in order that we too might start dying the deaths we need to die in order to achieve peace and start doing the, the practice, the, the hard, sometimes grueling practice required to experience the peace, the Shalom, if you will, of God. And we're going to cover this under three headings. I, I have to confess, I was tempted to name all three of my headings. Point one, put it into practice. Point two, put it into practice. Point three, put it into practice. But instead, I, I thought maybe that might make a point, right? But, but instead, I've, I've, I've added to each of those. So let's put it into practice in the presence of the church. Put it into practice in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And put it into practice in the presence of mind. Uh, the it in each of those lines is the, the letter to the Philippians, the instructions in particular of chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 3, verse 21, the body of that letter. Those instructions we need to put into practice, and the Philippian church needed to put into practice in the, in the presence of the church, first of all. And let's read again verses 1 through 3 under that heading, put it into practice in the presence of the church. Therefore... 
my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Suntike to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Our personal offenses are family business. Your personal offenses within the church are family business. Now that's very contrary to our very American way of thinking. But it's very in sync with biblical thinking. Not unlike Paul's letter to, the, to, to Philemon, that little letter to Philemon, you know, about Onesimus. He wrote it to Philemon and the whole church that met in his house, and it was to be read to the whole church, yet he's making a personal request of Philemon to do something. But it, in the mind of Paul was the church's business that they hear this request as well. Well, here Paul makes an appeal to two servant leaders in the church, these two women, gospel workers, to resolve their conflict, and, 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 and he does it while the whole church is hearing. And he actually calls the church to be a part of that resolution. Now, we don't know what their conflict was. We, don't, we aren't given the details of what the conflict was over. Maybe that's because it just doesn't matter. But Paul did not think their inability to resolve the conflict was a private matter. He didn't think that was a private matter. He thought it was a family matter. The church was evidently practicing some form of Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go to him. If he repents, you've, you know, you've restored your brother. And if, if not, bring one or two others along, etc. So he calls on a handful of the people, while the whole church is hearing the letter, to go and work on bringing resolution to this conflict. The, the, the church today does not have a reputation for being a people that stick with it through thick and thin. But more likely, we have a reputation as a people who scatter at the first sign of difficulty in relationship. Most would never come right out and say that they are leaving a church because they're unwilling to forgive someone or to forbear with someone. Instead, we, we recast history to provide support for our decisions that, that sound godly or even sometimes heroic. I mean, we, we, we turn out to be the hero of the story the way we tell it. Christianity Today did an article sometime back called Rooting Out Causes of Conflict and referencing churches. And they explored the difficult nature of understanding church conflicts. It, it offered three individual shortcomings that lead to conflict in churches. The first was fear. They, they wrote, many church conflicts begin when people become anxious. That's important to note because it comes up in our text. Anxious about what is happening or not happening in the church. When anxiety turns into worry and fear, people begin to lose perspective about what is actually going on. Then you get conflict. They continue, when we become aware of a problem, we sometimes overreact and the problem becomes worse than what we feared in the first place. 
We act in fear and lose our ability to think clearly and understand circumstances accurately. We, we act or make decisions that we later regret. Second thing they list is needs. Sometimes our needs, they say, either real or perceived needs, conflict with the needs of others. And that's when church conflict can begin. And then finally, they list sin. Imagine that. I readily see, they write, how others act selfishly, but I'm oblivious to my own selfishness. That attitude only intensifies conflict. Isn't that, isn't that what sin does in our hearts? We readily see what others, how they act selfishly, but we're oblivious to our own selfishness, the old log versus speck. Now, we don't know the cause of this conflict with Yodia and Suntike. But we know that it, that it had reached an impasse. They needed help to resolve it. And they must be willing to receive such help. Right? They, they have to be willing to receive that help. At times, each of us will need help to resolve a conflict. But we have to be willing to receive that help. We must be present to receive it. Yodia and Suntike were present. I mean, they may have been having an impasse, but they, they, one of them didn't run off to the church down the street because guess what? There wasn't a church down the street. That kind of helped. But they were present. They didn't just stop coming. They were present. And because they were present, they could receive help from others. Paul's appeal to them boils down to putting into practice his Instructions from chapter 127 through chapter 321. This, this reconciling and learning to have the same mind, which is quoted from chapter 2, verse 2. This unity that he's calling them to is what it looks like for these two ladies to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. To live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It is not enough only to hear the message. They and we must put it into practice. In Galatians, Paul describes a time when he had to confront Cephas, which was Aramaic for Peter, over a sudden withdrawal of fellowship from certain members of the congregation. I mean, there was just a sudden, whoop, not hanging out with them anymore. And Paul describes that as, quote, not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter's sudden withdrawal of fellowship from these members of the congregation was not in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, understandably, the truth of the gospel is the truth that is the gospel. So they're, they're, they're the same thing in, in some sense. But there's no doubt that it also means... That the truth of the gospel is that norm to which the gospel intends to conform our lives. That norm to which the gospel intends to conform your life and my life. Here's the truth of the gospel. Live it. Not the law. The gospel. Not Phineas. Christ. If you've been here in the last couple of weeks, those will make sense. If not encourage you to download those and, and listen because I think that connection is important. 
The truth of the gospel is something which we must act in line with in order to stop living a lie and to live the truth. Let me say that again. The truth of the gospel is something which we must act in line with in order to stop living a lie and to live the truth. These two ladies were not acting in line with the gospel. Are, are there relationships in which you are not acting in line with the truth? In which your life is not being conformed to the truth of forgiveness? The truth of being citizens of heaven, the truth of reconciliation. See, the truth of the gospel is different than the truth of your conflict. See, we, we often act in line with what we perceive to be the truth, and the Lord wants us to re- restore our thinking to understand that, no, no, that, that truth, quote-unquote, that you're holding on to is not the right truth to hold on to. Live in line with the truth of the gospel. And the gospel truth is reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration and laying down our lives. That's the truth we need to live in line with. These two ladies have contended at Paul's side, he says. And that word contended echoes what Paul said in chapter 127. It's the same word he uses there when he called the church to, quote, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel so when he tells these women since they it says about them since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel he's echoing back to this stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel the christian life was never designed to be free from contention or striving we contend in the christian life We are to contend in the Christian life. We are to strive towards something in the Christian life. And it is a contending, it is a striving against the the darkness of this world and the current of this world. And it will constantly be at work and we will constantly have that struggle. The Christian life is a striving, a wrestling against the spirit of the age. These ladies, amid their wrestlings, they failed to contend against their unmet desires. And so those unmet desires are now causing fights and conflicts between them. They they turned their contention toward the wrong thing, each other. They must put the teaching of this letter, which is at the core of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's the, that's the core of this letter. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, even though he was God, did not cling to his uh, uh, equality with God and use it to his own advantage, but made himself nothing. He used the power of being God to humble himself and make himself nothing and to love us. Infinite power. Omnipotent power applied to love. That's what Christ did, and we need to have that same thinking in us. So they must put this teaching into practice in the presence of the church. There's an obligation, a debt of love to one another. That leads to the second point, which is to put into practice. So after they put it in practice in the presence of the church, they have to put it into practice in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Read with me verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let 
your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There are four imperatives, or what we might say commands, in this paragraph. One of them is doubled, so there's really five, but it's the same one repeated. Rejoice, rejoice. That, that one's in there twice. Let your gentleness be made known. Do not be anxious about anything and make known your request to God. There's a relationship between them. First, rejoice. Paul's command to rejoice may seem odd, coming as it does, right after calling the church to help two ladies work through their unresolved conflict. Now is not a time that naturally calls for joy. <laughs> okay, we're going to work on seeing if we can't get them to reconcile. Oh, rejoice. That's not exactly what I felt like doing right now, Paul. <laughs> this call to rejoice is a bit like the call in James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. You, you don't naturally consider it joy when you encounter trials, but... As believers, we can and must consider it joy. In other words, he's not saying rejoice because all is happy. No, no, no. We rejoice in this case because we now understand that God works through our suffering. Even suffering one another's sin, which we need to forgive. He's going to work in the process of our forgiving them and forbearing with them. We rejoice that his purposes are being accomplished in our struggle. We can rejoice amid the striving or contention that is, the, that is the Christian life. That is the Christian marriage. See, in, in, when you're married, when you're like, we're, we're, just, we're just striving to get, we, we, we have these conflicts and we keep trying to overcome them and then we fail again and it's just this constant rejoice. But why would I want to rejoice in that? Because God is working in you. Donna and I were just talking the other night about you know, the unlikely odds that, that couples have when they enter into marriage, and we, we reflected on our own marriage, coming from two very different worlds, coming together very young ages. And I said, what's even worse is we look back on that time as if we were the same people then that we are now, but in reality, we've been made into the people we are now through that experience, and we weren't those same people, so we didn't even have that helping us out. The odds were vastly against us. But it was in that striving, in that contending for the truth of the gospel to put behind the spirit of the age that we became what God wanted us to be. We can rejoice amid the striving or contention that is Christian parenting because we know God is accomplishing his purpose. If someone told you that the Christian life is not a struggle, they were trying to sell you something. D don't get discouraged in your relationships because they become hard. Don't get discouraged in your marriage because it becomes hard. Don't get discouraged in your church like Yodia and Suntike because it becomes hard. Life in Christ is a struggle but it's a struggle in which we can rejoice. 
And because we can rejoice in the midst of the struggle, we're enabled to forbear, to show forbearance to all. Verse 5, I think, describes the key to this unity. And here's my translation of verse 5. Let your kind forbearance be known to all people. The Lord is near. And gentleness is fine, I I suppose. It's certainly what it looks like to all who see it. When they look on what you're doing, it would look like gentleness. But the word that's used here speaks of not insisting on every right of the letter of the law of law to be yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, to be forbearing. So I wrap that all up and show kind forbearance to all. It's that letting go of the incessant need to be right. Or maybe you think of it another way. That incessant need to be understood. Because if only you understood, you would, you would understand that I'm right. <clears throat> the wives are laughing because they know somebody like that. The husbands are either groaning or laughing because they recognize it. <laughs> Oh, ooh, ooh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I better get back to preaching. <clears throat> it helps us forbear to know that the Lord is near. He is present. He is watching. Indeed, we are joined to him, joined with him in his suffering when we suffer the offenses of others and forgive and forbear. It is here, in that struggle, in that forbearing, in that forgiving, it is here that we actually come to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the sharing, the fellowship of his sufferings, that somehow we might attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's in that context that that happens. When we flee from conflicts with brothers and sisters in Christ, we are fleeing from an opportunity to know Christ, to experientially know Christ. His nearness means he is aware. Because he's near, he's aware. And if he's aware, that's good because he's just and merciful. Which aren't opposites, by the way. Do not be anxious, but pray, we're told in verse 6. I'm taking those two together because one's the negative. Do not be anxious. The other is the positive. How do you get there? But pray. Bearing with others provides plenty of opportunity for anxiety. Uh, If you're not sure if that's true, just try it. Plenty of opportunity for anxiety. Who's going to look out for me? Who's going to make sure that my needs are met? Instead of anxiety, entrust these things to God in prayer. It's one more opportunity to enter into Christ's sufferings. He entrusted himself to God in prayer on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2 the description of this. When it says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's what it should look like when we are in the midst of a conflict about us. Whether that be at home or whether that be in the church or wherever that might be, that we might 
ourselves not retaliate, that we might ourselves make no threats, but rather that we would entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. But we can only live in this unity that Philippians calls for if we, rejo- if we replace our anxious thoughts about ourselves and pray, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. And the peace of God will keep your heart and mind. The peace that Paul has been urging the Philippians to pursue throughout this letter can only be had as we do these things. Rejoice, knowing that God is at work even in our strivings. Make kind forbearance the obvious characteristic of your life. Cease with anxious thoughts by entrusting yourself to God in prayer. Then, Put it into practice in the presence of mind. And this is an essential piece if we're going to have the unity that he's been talking about in this letter. If we're going to have the love that he's been talking about in this letter. That phrase, presence of mind, put it into practice in the presence of mind, generally refers to calmness of mind, self-composure, or being in control of your thinking even in chaotic circumstances. Now it's that latter one that I'm really driving at plus a little bit. Being in control of your thinking, even in chaotic circumstances. I'm speaking, however, of not being self-composed, but Christ-composed. A mind that is so possessed by the gospel that it is Christ's composure of the mind that is in us. It's having this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, in chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And whether we're talking about musical performance or the other arts like dancing or acting, it's no secret that there isn't a substitute for practice. Not just practice, but intentional practice. You can do bad practice, it won't get you very far, but intentional practice. Martha Graham, the dancer that we spoke of earlier, talking about the dance of life. It's a popular expression these days, but she was using it back in 1915 and talking about it then. She says, I think the reason dance has held such an ageless magic for the world is that it has been the symbol of the performance of living. The symbol of the performance of living. Now, Now, how does one achieve right and true performance in Dance or in living, in life. Graham answers this way. I believe that we learn by practice. Whether it means to learn to dance by practicing dancing or to learn to live by practicing living. Have you ever thought about practicing living? Paul's calling us to. Whether it's. Whether it means to learn to dance by practicing dancing or learn to live by practicing living, the principles are the same. In each, it is the performance of a dedicated, precise set of acts, physical or intellectual, from which come the shape of achievement, the sense of one's being, the satisfaction of spirit. One becomes in some area an athlete of God. Practice means to perform over and over again in the face of all obstacles, some act of vision, of faith, of desire. Practice is a means of inviting the perfection desired. 
I, as I read this, I can hear Paul saying, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. If, if it is true that we learn by practice, and I think it is, then we cannot learn the gospel merely by coming to church and hearing it. That is essential, but not complete. Faith comes by hearing, but faith which does not act is no faith at all. I could read about all the dance techniques in the world, attend seminars on all the dance techniques in the world, but until I start dancing, until I start dancing, I will not know them. I can study the gospel day and night, but until I put it into practice, until I resolve a conflict properly, until I forbear with another or forgive, until I have subdued my anxiety by praying to God and entrusting it to Him, I do not know the gospel as it is meant to be known. We must practice living, as Graham puts it. Do you practice living? How do you practice living? I think what Paul says in today's text is key to practicing living. Paul says to think on these things, referring to that long list of wonderful things that he had listed off. This think, this word he uses there is a different word than the word he's used back in 2.5 to have the same kind of thinking in you or the mind in you. It's a little different word, but it has the same basic meaning, synonymous, if you will. There is nothing more true, more noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy than the beauty of Christ self-emptying, of Christ's humility to stoop and serve. There's nothing more beautiful than God picking up a towel to wash our feet. That is what is so amazing about the gospel. What separates it from everything else. And Paul says, think on it. That think on it is transformative thinking. It's not just think about it as your, you know, whatever, but no, it's transformative thinking. It means to become like this list in your conflicts, in your relationships, in your service, in your use of your resources, in your pursuit of one another, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, that's a presence we want, amen? How do we practice this? Well, Graham is correct to say that practice is the performance of a dedicated, precise set of acts from which comes shape of achievement. It's the performance of a dedicated, precise set of acts. Although in the arts or sports, we, we might think of practice as what you do before the performance or before the game. At, and the concert or the recital is the performance itself. But the truth is that we must perform and practice until the performance is second nature. We have thousands of little opportunities to put these truths into practice, all of which prepare us for the day of testing when the medals are on the line. So practice is the performance of a, of a dedicated, precise set of acts, and, 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 and here are some of those acts. Practice begins 
when we submit to the act of baptism and enter a life of dying and rising. It begins when we submit to the act of baptism and, and begin a life of dying and rising. But that continues, right? Dying and rising. So next, practice is fortified in our gathered community as we worship together, sing together, pray together. As we pray for our enemies together, as we pray for one another together, as we pray for God's kingdom to come together. As we recite memory verses as we did earlier together. This practice is taking place and it's fortified. It prepares me for those times when I'm alone that I have that to draw on. The songs we sing. The scriptures we learn. Practice is fortified as we sacrificially serve one another in love. And finally, practice must involve writing the gospel on our hearts and minds. Paul is... It's not talking about esoteric ideas in this list of things to think about. Ideas of truth and goodness, whatever is admirable. Like, like, like you could cut that verse out, take it completely out of the letter of the Philippians, paste it on a, a nice placard and put it on your wall, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we do that, the danger is that we think that these ideas in this list are just, you know, just beautiful things. I think that tree's beautiful. I'm going to think on that. That's not what Paul's talking about. I'm thinking about the tree. I think it is beautiful. Go ahead. But you're not accomplishing this. Paul's talking about the gospel. The glory of the gospel. It's, it's like what he's saying when he says think on these things and put them into practice. It, it's a, a pilot. How many of you would want to get on a, a, a plane with a pilot who... Um, has never been on a simulator before, and he's just jumping onto this plane to start flying it. I'm, I, I'm not interested, right? I, and if I'm going to become a pilot, which I am not, by the way, but if I'm going to become a pilot, um, one thing for sure I know is I'm not going to try to fly a plane before I've actually tried it with a simulator, Okay. I want to put it into practice here before I put it into practice there. I, I want to I think on it. I want to dwell on it. I want to I imagine it. And a simulator is just the, the most real of imaginations, right? It's what it is. It's taking imagination and bringing it to life, so to speak. I want to imagine it to the level that I can then do it in real life. And to do that, it needs to be Daily. I want to love my enemies in, 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 in actual performance, but the first act of loving my enemy is praying for him or her. For I'll never be able to carry out other acts of love toward them if I'm unwilling to pray for them. Which is why Christ says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He immediately tells you where to start. We learn how to pray from one another. But we must bring that home and have Christ's presence of mind become our presence of mind as we pray the gospel, as we pray to walk in the nature of Christ as he did the gospel, as we pray to be reconciled in our relationships, to think about how the gospel impacts those relationships, and what it says, what the truth of the gospel says to replace the, 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 the lie that I've been calling the truth about the situation. We have a promise. The promise is that if we will put the teachings of this epistle into practice in the presence of the church, in the presence of the Lord Jesus, and in the presence of our minds. The God of peace will set up his camp in our presence. I like that promise. 
I want that promise. Putting these truths into practice is not an optional extra for the Christian life. It is the Christian life. But practice is hard. In his book, A A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson observes, quote, It is not difficult in a world of instant everything, as he had previously described before this paragraph, to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. It's not difficult to get them interested in the gospel. It's terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. In our kind of culture... Anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for, patient, for the patient acquisition of virtue. Think on these things. Put it into practice. Or as the title of his book indicates, there is little inclination to sign up for a long obedience in the same direction particularly in the direction of the cross, the Christ life, if you will. In our, our next series, and we're finished with Philippians, is going to be in Matthew. We're going to start, obviously, with the, the nativity, the, the, the Advent season, the birth of Christ. But in that series, we're going to be exploring what it means to be a disciple according to Matthew. Philippians is simply a condensed version of that, if you will. It, let's begin now being disciples. Let's pursue this life now, this peace now. Will you join me in this pursuit? Practice is hard, but it's also the only way to get there. We must practice in the presence of one another, the church, in the presence of the Lord Jesus in prayer, and in the presence of mind as we take in the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Uh, But the reward is well worth the long obedience, the lifetime of practice, for the God of peace will make his presence known among us. Amen? We're going to close today, and we're going to have communion here at the end of the service. Luke, if you could come. But as we prepare to do that, I, I would like to pray this prayer. This is my closing prayer, but I want you to join me in this closing prayer. It's a hymn from Charles Wesley, so if you would pray this with me. Uh, It should be on the screen, I think. Yes, it is indeed. Join me in prayer. Jesus, Lord, we look to thee. Let us in thy name agree. Show thyself the Prince of Peace. Bid our strife forever cease. By thy reconciling love, every stumbling block remove. Each to unite in dear. Come and spread thy banner here. Make us of one heart and mind. Gentle, courteous, and kind, lowly, meek in thought and word, altogether like our Lord. Let us for each other care, each the other's burdens bear. To thy church the pattern give, show how true believers live. Free from anger and from pride, let us thus in God abide. All the depths of love express, all the heights of holiness. Lord, may we indeed be a letter from Christ, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone.
The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Do this in remembrance of me. So this morning as we close, it's a perfect time, I think, to think about what this table represents. We are one body, for we partake of one loaf, Christ. We arrive into the family with forgiveness of our sins, so we forgive one another. And this table is a constant reminder that our sins are forgiven, a fresh renewal of that forgiveness, if you will. Isn't that joyous? What a meal. If you're our guest today, you're welcome to come and partake if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, I just ask that you'd pass on this meal or become a believer quickly. (laughs) Father, we give you thanks for this meal that you have prepared for us in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.